Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord God, we're very grateful for our friends here. Thank you for making us friends with each other because of your son. We'd ask that you would build your church in us naturally. In your son's name, amen. Um, I thought I was going to be really like over-prepared this morning. Uh, as you know, we were taking care of Ian last night, which meant that when Ian awoke in the room next to ours, Evan and Leslie awoke. Well, actually, Leslie awoke, and then she went and got Ian up and came in and said, would you hold him? So I awoke, and uh, it was a little bit after 6. Usually I get up at 6.30 on Sundays. And that gives me enough time to prepare a sermon, down on the computer, write the outline, get it printed out. So I said, okay, 15 minutes extra is going to be like gravy. It's going to, I'm going to have so many side extra references. And so I, I, I had my morning ablutions and I went downstairs, got my cup of coffee already made, got my cup of coffee. This is going very well at this point. I'd handed the kid off to the wife. And uh, sat down in the library and opened my Bible, fell open to Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall, which you'll notice is not the passage. And I got sidetracked, thinking about Daniel, thinking about Nabonidus the king, and thinking about Belshazzar and the handwriting and why did it mean. I just spent, I spent way too much time just thinking about Daniel 5 with no possible sermon coming out of it. So here we are, Luke 13. And it's not because Luke 13 is, well, it's an easy passage. I, I read through Luke 13 and I was um, eager to, um, uh, is there something? Closer to your mouth. Closer to my mouth. It's not coming out of the speakers at all. Hello? Yeah, that, that's a lot better. A lot better. Okay. Well, that might help. All right then. Jeremy Knudsen in Seattle has been running these sermons through a, like, dragon speak or something like that, trying to get it into, and it's amazing what comes back to me. That's going to be interesting. Luke 13 has got some interesting, small remarks of Christ. But as I read through the whole chapter, um, and this is almost the whole chapter of Luke 13, it just struck me that there were elements that we might look at the right on the surface stuff, but there were small elements. I imagine on the top of the left-hand side it says small things hidden. Because is it necessarily a connection between, you see, four paragraphs basically separated out there on the page? Um, there isn't necessarily a connection between the topics in those paragraphs. So the connection I wanted you to be thinking about is some things that you might miss because it's small. Something you should be thinking, biblically should be thinking, even though it didn't leap on you when you went through the passage. Luke 13, 1. 
There were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than any of the, all the other Galileans because they suffered thus? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, first off, because I know somebody, probably Tim, uh, Smallridge will come to me afterwards and say, do we have anything in Josephus about this incident? And uh, no, we do not. We do have a few stories about Pilate's behavior. Um, this seems to be a suggestion that something temple-centered, uh, maybe on the way to the temple, some Galileans were slaughtered with their sacrifices. We have no record of that historically, though Pilate does something uh, he, he loses his job. He, he's a proc, uh, procurator, uh, uh, proconsul from 26 to 36. So overlap in Christ's life nicely, uh, his ministry. Uh, and towards the end of his job, he killed a bunch of Galileans up in Samaria uh, for getting together in groups, which you never let Jews do because bad things happen, according to Roman thought. So he is like this. This is very in keeping with him, but we don't have a record of this event, let alone the tower in Siloam. But everybody knew about those situations, and so they thought to themselves, well, golly, this calamitous end, a tower falling on you, the Romans killing you, they must have been, sort of like Job's friends, Job is in pain, he must have sinned. Christ says, no, they didn't. But he's happy to tell them, unless you repent, you're going to die in the same way. A very, very poor public relations move. Very poor. Because he just told them that these guys who died in these calamitous moments weren't worse sinners. But you're bad enough to die that way. If you want a sinner to die in a calamity, how about you? Unless you repent, you will all perish in that manner. That's what it means when it says, likewise perish. Everyone's going to die, but not this way. I mean, you probably, some of us can see death from here. And so we're starting to figure out how much pain are we going to moderate and how are we going to end up dying at 95 lying in a bed with your great grandchildren gathered around singing hymns that's how I'm planning on going out we don't have those choices necessarily and the Lord is threatening these people who ask the question that you will, you will die in a calamitous way. Those are the options. Pilate slaughtering these Galileans. A building collapsing on you. Okay? Neither one is a positive. Neither one is lying in a bed at 95 with your great-grandchildren singing hymns. 
unless you repent, <coughs> you will all likewise perish. So not only is it, you could say, well, maybe he's just threatening the Jews of that period, because the Jews of this period were a difficult group. And it brings about the actual destruction of Jerusalem, and the Romans do kill 600,000 to a million people in the war with, uh, with Israel, with Judah. So it could be talking about them. But the idea is there in front of you. The Lord has a certain way of thinking about things that we don't always feel comfortable thinking. We don't, we don't feel this way. Matter of fact, the Lord pushes it off on them and says, unless you repent... We have all sorts of different doctrines about things, some you know, practical evangelism and how we speak to others, wanting to grease the skids, make it completely easy, dumbing down the gospel, making all sorts of... The Lord is not that way. The Lord is not that way. Unless you repent, you're going to die horrifically. That's if you wanted to sum it up. Unless you repent, you're going to die horrifically. But we as the Christians standing off to the side, we the Lord's disciples, listening to him ruining the, ruining the opportunity. And believe me, I know Christians who think, oops, that's the end of that. It's not even connected anymore. What shall we do? Whose fault is this? That's going to go there. For those of you who are listening on the SoundCloud, who knows? Do you want to be at me amplified or not? Duck? Duck? Okay. That seems like it's tight. Back to where the wife got it taken. There's not another boom standard. Well, science is taking care of this. Well, no, actually, but we will try. Okay. It's twice the pastor's wife has rushed the stage. Okay. We are, we're not entirely ready for the Lord's method of evangelism or building his kingdom. Doesn't he know we got to get a relationship with people. Don't you know, it has to be one of community. And other nonsense words that people use. Because we want to do something. Because my family members are perishing, and you're telling them that they need to repent or they're going to die horrifically. Jesus, quit it. I was in a situation many years ago when, I think it was... Gene Thomas from Boulder that was preaching at the sub ballroom and somebody came up to be speaking on the Lord and the good, uh, the rich young ruler and some staffer from some campus group came up to him afterwards and told him that Jesus was wrong. Jesus should not speak to people that way. 
It's amazing sometimes what Christian habits, Christian ways of thinking, because they miss the small hidden things in the scripture where the Lord leans into somebody and says, no, I don't think these Galileans died horrifically because they were greater sinners, but oh, now that you brought it up, I think you're going to die horrifically because you're a great sinner who has not repented. But we, we, we're trying to make better with that. We don't, we want to, have you ever had a friend who was just a little bit too open with the gospel? That's what Jesus is like, that bad friend that you've got to fix and, and go say something nice to the non-believer quickly before they get the wrong idea from Jesus. And he told this parable. This is in response to it. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And my, my King James upbringing, I have it here on the side, why cumbereth it the ground? Remember it that way. And he's talking about someone. Why do you cumber the ground? Why are you taking up space? Why is your silly face breathing any of this air that the rest of us could use? What are you doing? What's the point of you? The Lord has come to you and come to these unrepentant people he is talking to and that failure to produce fruit does cause in his vine dresser this response because you care that Jesus gets a bad rap on things or, or is not communicating well. He says, let it alone, sir. This year also I will dig about it and I will put on manure which is its own sermon right there. It writes itself. So you say, okay, I, I relate to the vine dresser. God is a little impatient. Jesus is his son and is God himself. And perhaps when they're that righteous, they, they want some action out of you. They want some repentance out of you. Want some fruit. Not letting you just sit around being a Christian for nothing, cumbering the ground. So we step in and we say, okay, we'll work on this. Well, we'll come up with a program for youth and we'll come up with a movement in American political landscape to change the nature of education or we'll stop abortion from whatever we do. We're going to do something. We're going to we're going to create a way of witnessing that reaches people with the real information without causing trouble. But even the vine dresser tells his master, and if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The mindset of those who are calling us of God to repentance, calling man to repentance. Yes, they want to work with you. Yes, they want to put the message in front of you. It says in Romans, how can they call upon him whom they've not believed and how can they believe unless they hear how blessed are the feet of those who preach the good news yes the vine dresser is there let me put some manure on it fertilize this thing give it every opportunity now we are not 
uh, ancient Romans, nor are we some lost native in New Guinea who does not have any opportunity. You could fall down in any one of our houses and probably bump into any number of Christian books. You could stagger drunkenly along the streets of Moscow and stumble into a church. You can, you are faced with manure everywhere. You could be growing. You could be repenting for that matter. We tend to side, like in so many situations, as if it were Christian to do so. What is Christian is what is defined by what our Lord is like and what our Lord asks of us. And we don't keep making excuses for people who come in and abuse his kingdom. If it doesn't bear fruit, you can cut it down. It brought to mind the Mark 11 passage here on the left-hand side. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, that is Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, he's talking to a tree now, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. A little later in the passage, they come walking by it again, and it's completely withered. Now let's just say, for the sake of your comfort, that Jesus doesn't have it in for fig trees. Everyone knew it wasn't the season for figs. Jesus knew. They knew. They wrote it down. They told you. And he still blasted that tree to oblivion. Destroyed it. For not having figs for the Lord of heaven and earth. Might be a symbol. Might be an example. If it's an example, what's an example of? Well, perhaps the other circumstances where fig trees are asking you to bear fruit for the kingdom of God, for the Son of God, that you would be a benefit. Yes, if you don't bear fruit, look at Jesus, he even expects fruit when it isn't the season for fruit. Because we have special times where we would say, oh no, 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 I, I'm going to a women's seminar at, at, at Post Falls. And after that, there will be a, a time of, of spiritual growth, but generally speaking, no. It's not the season for that. I don't have the time for this. The Lord is um, wanting to expect things of us at all times. We make growth available. That's why any of us are in the ministry. That's why any of us talk to our friends about spiritual things. We want to dig about them, put manure on it, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish, is the rule. And when you've been given the digging around and the manure, and you don't bear fruit, in this kingdom, you get cut off. You get cut down. It's on us. 
to seek our God. If we don't seek God, if the person in front of you doesn't seek God, you need to be like Christ. You need to be like the divine dresser. You need to have grace and mercy and patience. And you wait. But you don't start to cheapen the gospel. You don't say patience waits forever. Here it waits a year. You have the opportunity. Patience gives you the opportunity to make the change, but it doesn't say you have every opportunity. You've been in debates about this with people about hell. I don't know what your views are on hell. We don't have that kind of control over your thinking. But say you believe in a traditional, a traditional hell, bad place, hot. Um, many people wonder, are there opportunities to repent after you die? Our patience is a lot longer than God's. What are you doing saying this person didn't have... Well, because we're not doing it for someone who's like three. They, they're three years old, they die, and say they had sinned a little bit, really sinned, and, and so they're, they're lost, and, and, you, and your heart goes out to them, and you want to see them preserved, and so you say, is there any hope for them after, after death? Now we're thinking about our mom or our dad who don't know the Lord and don't care and have persisted in not caring and go to their deaths not caring and yet we want to have everything rest on God. God is the one who has to prove his holiness to us by having absolute almost um, exquisitely infinite patience not that anybody has to repent. The Lord walks in and says, um, you know, you have to repent, and you have to repent, and I'll give you one year. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. There was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made straight, and she praised God. But the ruler of the synagogue, and we know people in the church like this, indignant, because we know people in the church like this, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and we know people in the church like this, said to the people, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. Oh, you just want to smack this guy. Well, one of the small things hidden is the Lord's... Everybody wants clarity about what we're supposed to do. Right? As Christians. Wouldn't it be great if you came to All Souls and she didn't have to join the church, but you knew we had a little card that had all the things you have to do printed on it. Read your Bible, pray, talk to people about Jesus, be nice, you know, just all sorts of things that you have to be. What are the rules? And too often people are so interested in having the rules solve the problem of knowing what to do, they build the system. They actually have churches in which, if you join them, you get the list. Here, leaders of the synagogues were extending 
the moral, the, the list of, of remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy to all the things that they require of it. My, my offspring in New York tell me there are Sabbath elevators so that you don't have to push any buttons on the Sabbath if you're Jewish. They stop at every floor. They build buildings in New York, skyscrapers that account for people who have a religious view that they will tell somebody who just got wonderfully healed on the Sabbath that they should have come back on Monday. Because that's what he said. Right? Come on those days and be healed, not on this day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites! And of course, already you don't like following Jesus much in this chapter. He already said that the people in front of him are going to die horrifically if they don't repent. And I had to go back and explain that no, you have time to get it all figured out and even after death because who knows what happens in hell. You've got it all worked out. You're going to explain Jesus away. But the small hidden things are right there. Jesus is like this. You don't like Jesus. There's Siddhartha Buddha. You can become a Buddhist. You'll be, you know, reasonably nice. Shaved heads look good on some. But Jesus is like this. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his ass from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced. There you go. You're not quite sure what just happened. Why is everybody... You're one of the religious, and you're wondering why he's not obeying the rules that you expanded, that of course that no one should be allowed to do this, because the Bible rule is this, and we've expanded to include that, and we actually end up saying something completely unchristian. And when Christ himself says, have you ever thought, and says something ethically clear, That your heart, if you have any love for being good, you know, the people knew, that he was saying something good. And he had done something good. You want to be sure that you are not building an ethic based on some, some um, you know, sort of quantifiable list. You say, well, there's lists in the Bible. Yes, there are, but don't build it as a list. If it's not being built as your heart, see, the heart and your reason will conspire to cause you to rejoice about these kind of remarks. Because you will know that that was good to do. That woman had been in pain and difficulty for 18 years. And the fact that it was the Sabbath wasn't at odds with the Sabbath law. And all the glorious things that were done by him. One thing, if you are afraid of Jesus Christ in these sorts of moments, 
because he's saying things that you don't quite agree with or in ways that you would rather have him not say it, then realize that there is an actual, there is a place of real popular joy at what he finally says that because it overturned all of the religious pronouncements. Not saying all religious things said are bad. I'm a religious person. I talk in a religious building. Uh, whatever you, you know, there, there's religions that, religions that, religious things that are good. But you know of what we speak. There are hypocrites. There are people who picked up the wrong material, expanded it into a nice religious existence to where it sounded perfectly natural that you should not be allowed to do a good deed. And he said, therefore, verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. What's the small hidden thing here? Well, the kingdom, small and hidden. But we look at this like, and I've mentioned this before, like we were Coca-Cola, or the Republican Party, or America, we look at this as a promise of growth, not that it will grow naturally, that it starts small and will grow naturally, that it will grow infectiously, like leaven does, like yeast. A lot of things will grow naturally. A lot of trees will grow out of seeds. This one grows naturally, like seeds do. I don't think there's any reason it's called a mustard. Uh, tree is that the symbol of that but leaven we even have a chapter earlier Luke 13, 12 verse 1 it talks about beware the leaven of the Pharisees leaven is something that sits in you hidden that changes who you are infectiously it slowly like the leader of the synagogue turns that guy into a bastard and the Lord's looking at him and saying, what, what, what are you saying? Have you ever been in a conversation with Christians where they said something that you looked at them and said, you are Christians, aren't you? Happens a lot in circumstances where men are posturing about, you know, not turning the other cheek. They don't phrase it that way. They don't say, I'm going to disobey Jesus on this one. They say, I'm not going to take any guff from them. Right of self-defense. Say, um, I belong to a well, widely known but little practiced Near Eastern religion. It is called Christianity, and our Lord said, you don't do that. What does the Lord compare it to? Well, like a lot of things are leaven, and a lot of things are seeds, you have to be sure that that which is in you is, which, because whatever is in you, is infecting you. Have you ever seen somebody who you haven't seen in a while? 
and they've been in, say, maybe some half-baked fellowship of believers that, and they used to be a really excited, aggressive Christian about things, and ten years later you're talking to them and like, what happened to you? Or someone who let bitterness creep into their life, and if ten years later you meet them and you go, what? You look awful. Everything can be leavened. The kingdom of God is like leaven. Have you picked up the things that in 10 years you're going to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you picked up the things that is growing whatever your body you're in? Say you're, you're functioning in this small body of Christian believers and we're not got any promise of getting big. We don't need to get big. But the question is, we're going to grow naturally as individuals, not as a group, but as individuals. Is the kingdom of God at the end of our growth? Are we attracting the birds of the air, others to come and be with us? Is it an infection that the love we have for one another benefits one another? It's a, uh, it is a size distinction there in the passage. But a lot of things are seeds and a lot of things are leaven. You just have to be sure that the kingdom of God in you, I've heard a lot of people say, it's like yeast, it's like leaven, it's growing, it's growing. I'm a little less concerned about that it's being like yeast or being like a seed, and more like what is the leaven? Is it the leaven of the Pharisees or is it the leaven of Christ? Are you being made more like the Lord Jesus or less? Are you still saying Christian religious things, but you're not on the same page with Jesus ethically? You want to draw a line at the Sabbath so someone, someone can't be nice to someone else on the Sabbath. So he went on his way through towns and villages. This is all the same passage. The, the gaps are not because there's verses in between I'm skipping over. This is all the same passage. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those be saved be few? Well, let me try that again. Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's the question. And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the householder has risen up and shut the door, you'll begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There you will weep and gnash your teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And men will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's a remarkably, another unpalatable teaching of Jesus Christ. He is telling you, in every hope and aspiration you have for the kingdom of God, when you think it will grow, you want it to be bigger than everything. And when the Lord was asked directly, will 
the saved be many? He says, no. The passage you want to read with this is Matthew 7, here on the side. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I have suggested sometimes in conversations, you know, just about history or philosophy or whatever, that when the gospel is not preached, weren't many people saved? Maybe not anybody saved. Maybe even for centuries. And how could you say that? You're so desperate that the church be big and always be on the ground, proving to people that Jesus is the Messiah, that we will trade the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll say that certain theologies that deny the gospel of Jesus Christ are Christian just so that our group can be big. And it disturbs us when someone says, I don't think many people are going to be saved. The Lord says it again in another place, I don't have the reference offhand. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's what he was wondering. Interesting thing in the Matthew 7 passage, he keeps going through these images that we've been given. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistle? Think of that synagogue leader who's willing to say something unthinkable, morally unthinkable, and Christ has to go, you hypocrite. Can't you even be good? False teachers are out there not being good. You see it all the time, getting caught up in some scandal or another. So desperate to be in charge of a large group because it gives them a chance to be wicked to people. So every sound tree, oh, there's a tree thing, bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, oh, this is familiar, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. You've heard that verse before. It's all part of the cutting down the trees thing. Jesus wanting a fig when he wasn't going to get a fig. Do you have the same leaven that Jesus Christ has? Do you have the same hope and expectation? You're not waiting for us to win the corporate battle over all the other religions. It's, not, it's a matter of Jesus is true. Jesus is God. It doesn't. You know, Twelve people could be saved at the end of the world in the last generation, and Christ would still be victorious. <laughs> Do you have the same leaven? Do you want the same things? Thus you will know them by their fruits. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. I get a lot of people objecting when I suggest that an awful lot of people in the church are not going to heaven. Awful lot of people in the church are not going to heaven. Not this church. I'm sure all of you are. Positive. But the broader Christendom, you know. Neither the Lord. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's who enters the kingdom of heaven. Doing the will 
of God the Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? So they had prophecy in their churches. Cast out demons in your name. They had demon exorcism. And do many mighty works in your name. Many other miracles. And they said, Lord, Lord. They made the theological claim. And they did the magic. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. There is something, a small, hidden thing of God's seed and leaven in your life that you better go back and look through your seed catalog and say, did I plant what the Lord was planting in me? The kingdom of God. It's going to grow. It's going to grow naturally. You will meet others who have shared that moment. The leaven will infect others. Yes. But if you're ending up more concerned about how Jesus acts in these situations, how the Lord's patience expects certain things, what is wanted is our repentance in doing the works of God the Father. Having a real character of a Christian. If it's not producing that, it might be the leaven of a good religious person. Whatever religious tone, denomination you want to pick. Pick a theology. They've got a program. We should all be ready to see those who will refuse to bear fruit and refuse to repent cut down. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your long mercies toward man and us in particular. We've been patient with us. We'd ask that we would be both patient with others and also, Lord, ready to echo your son's expectations. Lord, we know that we're patient with them, knowing that without repentance, without them turning, without them seeking you, they have no part of you. Lord, we ask that we would be made the kind of bread that you're baking for your kingdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen.